Uh, my name is David. I love being one of the pastors around here. And one of those delights uh, in this multi-generational family comes when we get to welcome new life into the body. And so uh, if you ever in the future have a sweet little life, we love to get an email so that we can celebrate with the family. So a few months ago, uh, we got to welcome Owen and Jeffrey Rao, Owen Jeffrey Rao uh, parents Dan and Alex. Ali, born just a few months ago to see this sweet life enter the world. And uh, just last month, uh, another sweet life, Henry Brian Watson, uh, born on the 25th to Brian and Megan. And then uh, hopefully you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. The Serwinskis had a wonderful Thanksgiving, born at 446, uh, Harvest Michael Serwinski to Jack and Meg. And so pretty special to celebrate New New life in the body, and uh, and yeah, what a ride! And we love seeing just new life, the dawn of a new life. That that is this Advent season. We're, we're continuing on in Luke, but we are breaking for the Advent season to see this dawn of a new life. In the same way, they welcome new life. Uh, things slow down and become unhurried, and that sweet little life becomes the priority. I imagine if you're much like me, that there's always so many things happening. Maybe this weekend was an example of all the things happening in your world at Thanksgiving. Just the craziness that ensues when family get together. Maybe some guests, my in-laws were here this past week. They came on Saturday, and we were thankful. We had a great week, and we were thankful to see them uh, take off. We took them to the airport. <laughs> On, on Saturday. I was trying to say that as nice as we can. I'm like, I, we had a great time. It was a great time with the in-laws. Um, and, uh, and it was fun to see him, to see him go and, and, the, and the value of the <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. It was fun. It was, it was genuinely a good time. So dawn of a new life though, as we enter the Advent season, it, it is this sense that God is stirring something in us and, and we pause long enough to hear it and to experience what he has done. You heard in Fred's story, that dawn of a new hope, the dawn of a new peace. Maybe there's some unsettled circumstances, seeing God awaken a fuller understanding of the peace he brings, a dawn of a new joy, a dawn of a new love. And then Christmas Eve, it is one of two Sundays where primarily Sundays we try to equip the believer. We, we, we preach to the church. Two Sundays a year, we are thinking with the secret in mind, that is Easter and Christmas, longing to see the dawn of a new life happen. And so I'm excited for all that we have that we uh, answer the call to full life in Christ. And, and every week, I hope this isn't new to you, but, but man, if you're new around here, uh, I hope this is a core of who we are. Every week, we believe that God wrote a book, <laughs> that God actually inspired these very words through those original authors, that, that we look and God a mystery, how he spoke in and through people like you and me, normal people, his inspired words that they recorded in those original manuscripts. And that we, now 2,000 years later, we, uh, we get to study those words of Luke, inspired by God, through a process called illumination. That these words aren't written to us, we're not those original context readers, and yet they're written for us. That God is speaking, and, and we get to hear from him through his word. And, and a heart around here, 
We, we never want to settle for hearing from someone else that God loves us. Instead, every Sunday, every life group in those packets, we long to become first-handers, to hear from God for ourselves that he loves us. And so we do that. We want to think biblically about everything. We want to see the world through that grid. And so forgive the cartoon clip art. If you guys have a better picture of a bridge and a river, I would love to have it. But that's our goal. We want to cross this bridge from their town, from that original audience that is written to, to how it lands in our 21st century, Dane County. Because we look at our world, if, if, if it's, uh, if it's uh, clear to you, we want to be culturally discerning, wisely navigating an acceleratingly complex culture. Look around, and, and sometimes it's unclear of exactly the next best step to take. And so we want to seek to hear from God through his word so we can wisely navigate this, this challenging, acceleratingly complex culture. Ultimately, to get that grid of our theology, how we view and understand who God is so that we can live life. That's what we're after. We want to live this life. We want to answer this call to full living. And so for us, that is the journey of becoming a disciple. That we follow Jesus. We, we have a relationship with him. But we understand we can't do it alone. That we need other people in this journey with us to help us see blind spots. To point out areas of growth. And, and then we want to, we say, we just are some beggars who have found some bread and... We want to hoard it as much as we can. We want to just like give people the Heisman and stiff arm people to keep them away from this bread, right? Is that what we do? No. We want to follow Jesus, build community, and seek transformation in our homes, our neighborhoods, and our worlds. And, and sometimes what happens, though, is, uh, is we get attached to the, the, the vessel. There's this quote from Dallas Willard. He says this, the problem comes... When we mistake the vessel for the treasure, for the treasure is the life and power of Jesus. And, uh, and this morning I forgot my Yeti cup. And so instead I put, I put coffee in a styrofoam, a styrofoam cup this morning. Um, and, and it doesn't quite retain the heat as well, right? It's not quite as flashy as the Yeti cup. And yet what's the goal? Coffee. The coffee. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Dan's probably two cups deep right now. He's ready. <laughs> the treasure that is Jesus. It's, it's not ultimately about the vessel. We need vessels. But at the end of the day, we collectively as a community chase after, as a multi-generational community, chase after life with Jesus. And so next week, uh, we do this a few times a year. Uh, we launched, if you remember, a year back, we said, what would it look like to continue to embrace a multi-generational family? And so about two times a year, we do this family-style gathering. Next Sunday, the kids will join us and we'll bring the energy that kids bring, uh, but the joy of actually growing together as a community. That's next Sunday. You could expect that. And then next Sunday, uh, one of the ways we get to live out generous relationships. We're going to partner with the local food pantry here. They asked. They said cereal and chunky uh, soup. And so uh, there was a table out there. If next Sunday you are so inclined, uh, bring your favorite cereal. And, uh, and the thing right now in my household are like cinnamon toast crunch minis. You guys seen these? It's the same. It's like dots, right? Or dipping dots. It's like dipping dots, right? Those little things. It's just ice cream. Same thing. But when you package it in a creative little way, we shell out more money for the different products. So all that to say, that's, the, that's probably what we're going to be bringing, just cereal and chunky soup.
But it is this dawn of a new life. There's a lot of other opportunities. Like you heard Fred mention, you could head to Hillcrest Bible Church, uh, the landing page slash Christmas to see a few of the other things that are happening this Advent season as we anticipate the arrival of our Savior. And so we are going to look at different people. We're continuing in Luke, looking at the way Jesus interacts through parables as well as interactions. Different people and the way Jesus is gathering and people respond ultimately for this dawn of a new life. So here is the text this morning. Luke 18. And it's another big chunk of text. We will be moving. So we'll, uh, <laughs> Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right at the get-go, you can get a sense of what the big idea is and where we're headed. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose heart. Are there things in life that cause you to potentially lose heart? Are there things just weighing on you that, that maybe take your focus and, and shift it towards that thing that, that might stir in us some tentativity? He says a parable that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who, who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, the irony of Jesus picking a judge, a Jewish judge as the man he's going to describe, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's the second story. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One more story. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's where we're headed this morning. God rewards those who seek him. The dawn of a new hope. God rewards those who seek him, filling us with a hope that never diminishes. A hope that sustains us, like you heard Fred say. A hope that sustains us through all of life's circumstances. So pray with me as we, uh, as we look into the text this morning. God, you're so good. Help us hear from you through your word as, as, we, as we believe. These are your very words recorded uh, by those original authors that we get to study, reflect, not ultimately to study a book, but actually hear your heart and your voice. So reveal yourself wherever we might be, whatever might be clamoring for our attention that we pray and not lose heart. Always for your glory. Amen.
Amen. So the flow, here's where we're headed this morning. Three ideas. We desperately approach God who hears and responds to the cries of his children. We dependently approach God, even sinners, even as sinners. Because I know a secret about us, right? You know a secret about every single one of you? We are sinners needing mercy. We dependently approach God, even as sinners needing mercy. And we approach God and must become like a child, completely trusting. So here's where he starts. That first story about that desperate widow. We desperately approach God who hears and responds to the cries of his children. And he told him a parable to the effect, do not lose heart. Pray, pray and do not lose heart. And then he tells them the story about the widow. And he makes some observations about this judge. What do we first see? He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow who cried out often, give me justice against my adversary. Do we know exactly what she's crying about? We do not. The story doesn't tell us. But we can make a guess. She's looking for justice, being treated unjustly. And yet, what do we learn about the judge? He doesn't care. (laughs) He doesn't care. He is, a God, he is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Back in 2 Chronicles, we see who these judges were supposed to be. They were supposed to be uh, ensuring those oppressed were taken care of. He said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. You are instilling God's justice among mankind. He is with you in giving judgment. So now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Because God is the one who's taking care of people. You're just simply executing the order. So be careful what you do. For there is no injustice with God. He cares for the oppressed. And there is no partiality. And he doesn't take bribes. He is full of character. Full of compassion. Is that what we see about this judge? And not at all. You guys with me this morning? Or is that snow getting to you a little bit? You're thinking, man, should I have snowed just a little? Should I have shoveled a little bit? Is it going to turn to ice? If you drove over it today? No. no? How long do we have? A couple weeks. weeks? It'll be gone? It's going to be in the 50s, isn't it? It's going back to the 50s. Ah, Just drive right over it. No problem. What about the judge? He doesn't fear God. He doesn't. Some people love those sidebars. Other people are like, just stick to the script, David. Just stick to the script. The unrighteous guy, he doesn't fear God. He, He doesn't respect man. So there's the irony. Jesus is telling us about a judge who we'd all go, no, no, no. He's supposed to ensure justice. And yet he's telling about a story where he lacks character and lacks compassion. And what do we see about the widow? Man, persistent, persistent, persistent. And so the question we're asking is, is the attribute that Jesus is emphasizing Just be a pain in God's side till you get what you want. Is that what he's emphasizing? Because this past weekend, I felt like I experienced that as a parent. Do you guys experience that? One of your kids just has something in their mind. Kids, do you guys do this to your parents? You have something in your mind, and you're just going to keep asking. You know who to go to first. Who's the wink link? You're going to go to them first. If they, if somehow someone says no, you're going to go find the weaker link and say, you know, I'd really love this. And then hopefully parents are on the same page. Then they return back and say, oh, they give a different reason. Just persist and And finally you're like, I don't want to deal with it anymore. Is that the attribute he's, he's evaluating? Or... Is he contrasting the unjust judge with the justice of God? Here's what he says. 
And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And so it seems he's contrasting the unrighteous judge who ultimately brings righteous judgment with a righteous God who always brings justice. Because does God love the perspective he brings on life? Yes, God, God loves his perspective. And does he love people? Yeah. And he is actually the definition of character and compassion. We've seen this in Luke. Luke 6, he is kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. There is common grace that exists in this world that won't exist in eternity with those that don't treasure him. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But you might rightly ask, David, there's things going on in my life that I pray for, and God is just not hearing them. He just must not care about the circumstances of my life. Because David, we just read the text. What did he say? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. <laughs> now, what's one option to take justice coming speedily? <laughs> when I pray for it. <laughs> Soon, today, this week, right now. <laughs> some of the pain of relationship that we carry, you might have experienced some of it at Thanksgiving and some of the tension that exists. Some of the hurt and pain that exists in our families, our workplaces. God, I've been praying for justice to be accomplished, and, and I don't see it. God, do you even hear my prayers? There was an example of that that happened recently in our world that struck me that might interpret speedily that way. Does anybody know who this person is? And I'm probably going to butcher her name. I said it first service. Rapino, Megan Rapino, Rapino. Rapino, talented soccer player on the women's national team, and uh, in her last game, just tore her Achilles. So she was playing, last game, tears her Achilles, and she was asked afterwards just to respond about the circumstances. In her, in her interview, here's what she shared about getting injured. If there was a God, this is proof there isn't. Now, what's she saying? <laughs> God cares if she really knew God. He cares about basketball far more than he cares about soccer. Right, Jason? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. He cares. He cares about circumstances. If he really cared about me, I wouldn't have torn my Achilles. Therefore, there's no God because he's not taking care of my circumstances. That my Achilles was torn, is proof from her vantage point there isn't a God. Now, sometimes what it feels like is those that are aware of a God sometimes respond with similar postures. God, if you really cared about me, these challenging things I'm going through, you'd take them away. The other way to take speedily I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. When? Does anybody remember chapter 17? At Jesus' return, justice will come speedily. 
And I'll just look back at chapter 17. If you weren't here or if you forgot, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look here, there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then Jesus goes to the future. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go and follow them. For God's justice will come speedily on that day as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. So will the Son of Man be in his day. At Jesus' return, it will happen speedily. And yet, does Jesus care deeply about our circumstances? Oh, man. So I want to pause and just look at prayer real quick because he says this. Will he delay long over them? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So just doing a brief look back at what he's been calling us to, that genuine faith that treasures him, we spend a, a lot of time, who is Jesus? The person and work, there is no other way to the Father but by this one name. And he calls us, love your enemies. Not that I'm their enemy, but they are antagonistic towards me and I love them. Merciful to those in need, using resources to promote Jesus' kingdom, forgiving others. <laughs> oh, and then anticipating and praying for Jesus' return. So what is prayer? What is that? If he says we ought to pray so we don't lose heart, I want to know what that is. It's talking with God about things that matter to him and matter to me. So I want to give a list of a few things that prayer might not be. Maybe this is you or maybe you're like, David, I've never seen prayer that way. But prayer is what happens before I start my day. I just say that's prayer, then I go live my day. But prayer, that's what it is right there. Or maybe you see prayer is what happens on a Wednesday night prayer meeting. That's prayer. We go to a prayer meeting. Maybe you think prayer is what I do. You're like, well, David, you pray. That's what prayer is. You just do it. You and the Father. David does it. We might see it, a wrong thinking about prayer. It's primarily, hear that word, primarily about God fixing my circumstances, reflecting my pursuit of lesser joys in this world, that I think if I just had that shiny new toy, then I'd be happy and fill in the blank for whatever that shiny new toy might be for you. We're unsure whether God is near. Maybe if you grew up with a view that God is holy and righteous and distant, you're unsure of whether he's actually present in your day-to-day unsure of, of whether God has my best interests in mind. Because when I look around the world, I go, I don't know if you're really taking my interests into account here, God. I'm not sure you really have my best interests in mind. Unsure of my interests are big enough for God's concern. Again, if he's transcendent, maybe my issues just aren't really that significant for him to take into account. Overall, it just feels like this posture that we just take prayer pretty casually. So a few guys that throughout history say it better than I do. Here's John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Prayer is a sincere, sensible affection pouring out of the soul to God through Christ and the strength and assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has promised. We long for a God who will bring justice to fulfill it. This guy, Andrew Murray, another old dead guy that says some good stuff. Prayer is not a monologue, but a dialogue. It's not simply this one-way talk of me sharing with God. It's actually a dialogue. 
It is God's voice and the secret is the secret of the assurance that he will listen to mine. And Eugene Peterson puts it another way. Same general thread. Prayer is, have you thought about prayer this way? Answering speech. The first word is God's word. He spoke the world into being. He gets the first word and he exists far beyond, far before us and far after us. Prayer is a human word. It is never the initiating and shaping word simply because we are never first, never primary. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but what? Answer God to the millions of things he's doing all around us, that we get to join the ocean of things he's doing. So what is prayer? Talking with God about the things that matter to him and matter to me. We go through our Monday to Saturday and we ask in our vocations, your vocations matter. Where you're planted matters. Your home life matters. God, what are you inviting me into today? And we ought not lose heart when we pray to a just God. And then second, Another posture. Man. These last two points are going to go very quickly. That was a lot longer. You could be like, there was the first sermon and now we got two more. No, we're going to go. We're going to, we got a lot of good stuff. We dependently approach God, even sinners needing mercy. Because what's that secret we all know about each other? Man. <laughs> Born into this world, sinners. <laughs> capital S sin, the, the reality of being born into this life. And then we little s sin. We continue to sin. Namely, finding joy in lesser things than God intended. Not a list of bad, not a list of good, but rather just a posture towards this holy, righteous God. Here is what he says. Pick it up at verse 9. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He gives us two people. Who does he give us? The Pharisee and the tax collector. Telling the story in Judaism, their town. How many would have anticipated that the tax collector would be the hero of the story? This is not what people would intend. And yet Jesus, to make a point about those who trust in their own righteousness, highlights the tax collector. Here's what he says about the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, you might think he's going to probably say some, some things about, man, it just makes him so self-righteous. So it's just, oh man, what a bad guy. He's saying that kind of stuff. What does he say? I pray that I'm not like, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Is that a good thing not to be? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you're not extortioners, or at least I hope. I'm glad we're just people. I'm glad we're not adulterers. I'm glad I'm not cheating on my wife, right? That's, a, that's like a really positive thing. And yet, what is he saying about the condition of the Pharisee's heart? Then he says, flips it to positive, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Again, are those positive things? Hey, one more time, bro. I think the rest of them, I'm like, they're like thinking about a football game this afternoon. It's just getting comfortable. It's cozy in here. Is that a good, th are those good things? Yes. yes. Fasting, hunger, feeling the hunger pains to be filled up with a hunger for righteousness. Fasting is a good thing to be attentive to God. Tithing, that's a good thing to give of our resources to show God's provision in our life. These are positive things. And yet what's the condition of his heart? 
He stands proudly before God, earning his standing by what he's done. Man, thanks that I'm better than those knuckleheads. And then compares himself favorably to others. And it's filled with a lot of quote-unquote spiritual religious activity. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's not the sacred and secular world. Instead, it's just life. Whether you eat or drink, drinking coffee as an expression of faith or drinking coffee to yourself. He is self-righteous and self-reliant. Unlike the tax collector, we see a different posture that Jesus is valuating. He says, but the tax collector standing far way off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What do we see in the tax collector's attitude? That there is this posture where he stands with an awareness of who God is. Unlike Megan, who, who made it about her, he stands with a recognition of God. Not making it about our circumstances, but primarily about an awareness of God. And he acknowledges his brokenness. And it doesn't seem like there's any apparent religious activity in his acting. Instead, there's a recognition of his unrighteousness before a holy God and conscious, totally conscious of his dependence. Even a sinner needing mercy, he says. And so what do we see? We're going to see a massive, shocking reversal. The guy we would expect to get esteemed does not, and the person who we would likely not get esteemed does. I tell you, this man, this man, this Pharisee, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The guy that we thought would be exalted, the one that had his life together by behavior standards, <laughs> what does Jesus say? <laughs> He's going to get humbled. And the person who had a recognition and contrition and brokenness of the inability to stand righteous before a holy God, what happens? He's exalted. For me, it, it speaks to this journey of life. What does that A represent? If you've been here before and you've seen this, if you're new, then don't shout out an answer. But ideally, you've seen this potentially once or twice. What's that A represent? And we'll see. Freddie, what's that A represent? The start, of the, journey. the start of the journey. There is a point. We're not Catholic. There is a point where we are justified, declared righteous. Catholic theology, you never know. It's called infused righteousness. You never know if you're righteous enough. We believe in imputed righteousness. God's righteousness is placed over us. He didn't see us anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness. There is a point where we place our faith in Jesus to cover that brokenness. But are we perfect? No. Oh, man, just talk to my wife. You get a small window. A then turns to B, C, D, E, F. We just keep moving in this journey of ongoing spiritual transformation. There is a movement of growing in grace. And what is that growth? It's a recognition of God's continued grace in our life and a continued recognition of that tax collector's heart posture. We just keep growing every step of the journey. What is each of those steps called? Grace. <laughs> every step just becomes another step of God's grace. And so just for letter's sake, we'll say I'm David. Somewhere on this journey, where sometimes my heart might look like that tax collector or the Pharisee who looks back and sees person B back there and goes, man, I'm thankful I'm not an adulterer. 
unjust, extortioner, like that knucklehead over there. Look at how much they have to grow. Or sometimes, maybe we look ahead and we go, I don't measure up. And we beat ourselves up with guilt and shame, not being as far along as someone else in their journey. I don't pray like them. I don't do good like they do good. And we start to feel condemned. Maybe, even worse, we look back at people that are still pagans living in sin, acting like pagans, living like people who don't treasure Christ, and we go, what a bunch of morons. I'm getting a little too excited. I'm toning it down a little bit. And our heart starts to reflect out of the Pharisees that are finding righteousness in our own. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't care about our behaviors. Don't hear that. But what he is saying, if there's a sense of feeling spiritually superior, that's a really bad thing. It might mean we have a less full view of God's holiness and his righteousness. If we feel like we're bringing something to the table, God's lucky to have me on his intramural softball team because I'm just batting like 600. If we feel like we bring anything other than God's imputed, imputed righteousness, that's a bad sign. And we do. We ask and assess what is motivating these behaviors. That is really, really significant. We desperately approach a God who hears as his children crying out. Are there circumstances in your life you're crying out for right now? There are some things near the top of my list that I am desperately asking God to solve. And yet he doesn't seem to be answering nearly as quick as I'd like. You cry out, we ought not lose heart, he says. And we dependently approach God, even sinners needing mercy. There's a secret we know about each other, right? We all come to the table wrestling with something that we think might bring more significance than God actually intended it to. And then he tells us about this beautiful posture. We must become like a child. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them saying, but Jesus, Jesus called them to him. Now there's a bunch of thems and theys and hymns and they just trust me that we're moving forward, but you can go back and look and try and parse which of those are referencing. But Jesus then says this to the disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. There's something about what he's calling out that is really, really significant that we'd want to pay attention to. What's he saying? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This posture is a really big deal. When we use the word like, for you grammarians, it's not a metaphor, that's a simile. Man, well, thank you. That's a simile. It's a figure of speech involving a comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind. Something is like something else. So give me some examples of a simile. What would that be? 
When you think of something being like something else, maybe it's something around Christmas time, maybe it was something while you were eating, maybe it's something in the work. What's a simile? Give me an example of a simile. Tall as a skyscraper. What are they saying? Mary says that about her son and her husband all the time. These dudes are tall. Every time you're in a conversation with Dirk or George, you're like, dang, these guys are tall like a skyscraper, right? They're just massive. Give me another one. Say that again, Abby. Herding cats. Like you've been in my home, you must have been. There's just four kids running around. What does that mean? It's a hurt like cats. Hurting like cats. What is that? Oh, there you go. So what's hurting like, or like hurting cats? What is that? And then we'll go to curiosity. It's just like chaos. Man. And then curious like a cat. What would that be? On the cat theme. I'm a dog person. Have we talked about this? I'm a dog person. All these cats. Maybe there's some growth in my life. My kids were asking for a cat because they saw someone else with a cat. I don't know. <laughs> so curious like a cat, right? Just inquisitive. Faith of an adult like a child. What's he saying? Fully trusting. <laughs> to have faith as an adult like a child. Because he's not emphasizing everything about a child. What's he emphasizing? Man, kids are just fully trusting in their families. I remember going to the beach in California. That there's this sense that it produces something. When kids trust you, fully trusting that there's a fearlessness they live with. That they just, they're not worrying about what's going on. We're standing by the ocean. Just a crazy amount of power. And my kids are just delightfully playing by the ocean. Why? Because I'm there with them. They're fully trusting that if a wave crashes and there's a riptide or an undertow, they're not going to get sucked out. They have no clue about it. But they're confident that dad's somehow going to figure it out. Now, when dad was lounging in the, uh, in the chair uh, and the kids were down by the ocean, there was another person that was uh, helping me return back to the ocean. Uh, Casey was making sure that we were worrying just a little bit, but they weren't worrying one bit, fully trusting. There's a security. There's just a security that they find in mom and dad's love. Do we have that security that God is loving us while we were yet sinners? Nothing we could do to earn his love more. Nothing we could do to have him love us less. We're secure in his love. We don't compare ourselves to where we ought to be or should be and the guilt that accompanies that comparison. We don't look at someone else and say, man, I'm just not doing enough. I need to do more and try harder. The kids, we love all our kids. We don't want them comparing themselves to each other as if somehow it's going to earn mom or dad's love differently. We love our kids equally. We share our needs, not fearful of making them known. Do your kids happily share their desires with you? I mean, I, my kids freely let me know what they would prefer. Often. <laughs> they have no problem sharing what they desire. Now, we don't always deliver it. But they have no problem sharing. Might we, with no fear, share our desires before a holy, righteous God, ultimately longing for his glory. We live a life of wonder. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, talks about Elfland. He talks about why we as adults need fairy tales. 
We tell fairy tales about the goose that laid the golden egg. Why? Because we're no longer enamored that geese lay eggs. <laughs> Why do we need gumdrop forests and whatever it is? Why? Because we're no longer enamored with the fact that an acorn, a seed, will turn into a mighty oak tree. Kids live with this life of wonder. Might we look around the world with a wonder at what God is doing? We have a non-anxious presence. We trust that our Heavenly Father is giving good gifts to His kids. And then it leads to this happy existence of life. Fully trusting. Fully trusting. So the question then becomes, what does our prayer life tell us about what we're trusting? What are we trusting in this life? What are you praying for? Because our prayer life reveals our heart. The question, do we even pray at all? Do we enter most circumstances in life as a fixer? I'm going to solve it. I'm going to do it. Or do we acknowledge our desperate and dependent reality? If we do pray, does it start with God's glory or do we start with our needs? Or is it always framed within God? We trust you are at work in a myriad of ways we might not often see. The first time I saw that I was an adjunct professor, I had some views about what I thought we could do in the department, and yet I was hit with the reality that I might not have the fullest view on what the department is and the goals they have. But I can share where I'm coming from. Do we start with God's glory? Or do we start with what we need? And are we always looking for our circumstances to be solved? Or do we ever acknowledge God's grace in it and what he might be up to? And so we pray, we have a conversation, we have a dialogue that starts with God and we listen to him first. <laughs> and we listen regularly. And so I have a few encouragements for you note takers. Do not write every single one down. But maybe there's one, one prayer that strikes you. So I'm going to invite the worship team up as we go through this. What might be one prayer we might step into as we long, God, what are you doing in our life? What are you inviting us into? One of these might be a step for you this week. Do we ask for an increasing appreciation of God's glory? Do we ask for a deepening experience and awareness of his presence? His presence in all things. In the circumstance we're battling right now, do we believe God is in it with us? Do we ask for a fuller realization of his generosity to the way he's been generous to us in a myriad of ways? God, might we see how even in, I was pulling up to a light. Man, I never do this. I'm from California. Do you guys know what a California roll is? Not the sushi, but when you go to stop signs. I pulled up to a stop sign just earlier this week. Someone came flying through the four-way stop. Man, even in that, God's generosity and things that I, I was oblivious to. Maybe for some of you, they get just, forgive this word, just trying to make a point. You just get pissed off when, you, when you're in traffic. You're hitting every single red light. Might God, even in that moment, be trying to steal your heart to an unhurried pace in life? You ask for a fuller realization of God's generosity in all things. Do you ask for greater confidence in Jesus? A fuller understanding of the salvation he's produced in your life. Do you ask God to heal ours and others' hurts, not ultimately for my need's sake, but that his glory would be seen by us and by them? And then maybe, just maybe, 
You long to be a beggar who's found some bread and share it with those around you. Do you ask for greater boldness in telling men and gospel stories to those in your life? I'm excited what God is doing this Advent season as we reflect on we are no longer slaves, but we fully trusting are his children. Pray with me as we continue. Oh, Jesus, you are so kind to us. Your grace, your provision, your goodness, we have found life in your name through faith. May we experience more and more of the reality that comes with that hope. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.